Hello from the Financial Times in London. I'm Katie Martin and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into the stories that matter. Catalonia erupted this week after a Spanish Supreme Court decision to jail a group of separatist leaders for their part in organising an illegal independence referendum two years ago. The region's government attacked the sentences and thousands took to the streets in protest. Here with me to discuss what happens next is our correspondent in Madrid, Daniel Dombey. First, let's hear about the reaction of Spain's Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez and of Kim Torra, who's the head of the regional government. The government of Spain respects and abides uh, by the decision of the Spanish Supreme Court, which puts uh, an end to a judicial procedure meeting all requirements of due process transparency and separation of powers. Nobody is above the law. Nobody is above the law. In a democracy like Spain, nobody is subject to trial for his or her ideas or politics, but rather for criminal conduct as provided by the law. The Catalan government and I personally reject this verdict because we consider them unjust and anti-democratic and because they are part of a political trial and wide-ranging campaign of legal action against Catalonia's right to self-determination and against the independence movement. Now, today, more than ever, we stand by their families because today, more than ever, we feel a sense of fraternal solidarity with those convicted by the Supreme Court. So, Dan, help us out here. Give us some background to this court ruling. Why did the jailed leaders decide to hold a referendum given that it was declared illegal? And what support does independence have in the province? In terms of why they decided to hold a referendum, There's been a real increase in support for separation from Spain over the last 10 years among about 50% of the Catalan population. There are various origins to this. The Spanish Supreme Court struck down a self-governing statute, a statute of autonomy in 2010 that angered many people in the region. There was also the financial crisis. There was also problems with corruption. Basically, there were many different reasons for alienation at a time when the Spanish political system on many fronts was kind of breaking down. And also, of course, there's just a long-standing discontent with Spain that's gone back hundreds of years in many ways in Catalonia, whether it's back to 1714 when Barcelona was taken by Spanish troops or before. So those are some of the many reasons. They did this in the 1st of October 2017, despite warnings from the courts that it was illegal because the Spanish constitution talks about the indissoluble unity of Spain. Because also, one of the things you've got to remember is that Catalan politics is divided in at least two ways. It's divided between the pro and anti-independence camp, but it's also divided within both camps from left to right. And in those circumstances, often many people outbid each other. And so there was a sense of we have to do this now because we might be outflanked. So that's kind of why they did it. But the courts found that this was sedition. They saw this as the equivalent of an uprising that undermined public order. They said that they'd been warned that it was illegal by the courts. And indeed, the following unilateral declaration of independence was even more against the Spanish order. So they did find against that. They didn't find the graver 
case of rebellion because they said there wasn't violence there or wasn't sufficient levels of violence there. And they didn't think that there was really a very serious effort to, to create an independent state. But under the Spanish criminal code, sedition, which is an offence which is not universally recognised in other jurisdictions, carries a term of 10 to 15 years if you're a public official. So then we saw very, very considerable jail sentences for people, including Oriol Junqueras, who was the former deputy leader of the region. What kind of sentences are we talking about here and how many people? Well, it's nine people. There were 12 people on trial. Nine of them had been in preventive detention for about two years. Those nine people were all sentenced to prison terms for nine to 13 years in the case of Mr. Junqueras for, in all of those cases, sedition. And in some of those cases, including that of Mr. Junqueras, for misuse of public funds for financing something that was illegal under Spanish law, i.e. the referendum of the 1st of October 2017. You've mentioned that this has caused quite a dramatic reaction. Tell us what's been going on in response to these sentences. Well, we've seen escalation. So this verdict was issued formally first thing on Monday. We then saw the Spanish government come out and say this sentence had to be respected. But we saw the head of the Generalitat, the regional government, Kim Tora, talking about how it was an act of vengeance rather than justice, how it was absolutely indefensible and calling for protests against it. We then saw those protests in fairly large measure on Monday. That included storming the airport, trying to block access in and out of the airport, which resulted in 100 flights being cancelled, and some police charges against demonstrators, which were quite grim. One person lost an eye, another person appears to have lost a testicle among the protesters, and there were wounded police as well. But then yesterday in Barcelona, things really came to the centre of the city, where I was. And there, there were people who converged on the Spanish central government's headquarters in Barcelona. There was an organised protest with, it seemed, tens of thousands of people in the evening. People there were very, very strongly het up. A lot of people used very strong language to talk about Spain and the Spanish government. But after that protest was officially over, then more violent protests began. People started throwing stones, they started throwing bottles, they started throwing firecrackers, masked people appeared. And the Catalan government says that there was a violent minority that took part in these events. And we saw iconic streets in Barcelona become places of pitch battle. There were over 150 barricades with bonfires throughout the city, in the heart of the city. How is it being viewed across Spain? Well, we saw in the reaction to the referendum in October 2017 and the unilateral declaration of independence, an upsurge for the right and indeed the far right in Spain. We saw an upsurge in this far right party called Vox in Andalusian elections that around the start of this year and then in general elections this April in which they got about 10%. We also have seen an increase in the past in Ciudadanos, which is a pro-market party but has a very tough line on Catalonia. And walking around Madrid, you see more and more Spanish flags, which people put out to show how strongly they feel about what they see as the indissoluble unity of Spain. So I think that's the prevailing attitude in much of Spain. I would say, however, two other things. One is that Spain's Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez is trying to give an idea that this is the kind of crisis that needs a firm hand of government and that, you know, with general elections just around the corner in Spain, because we're going to get a reprise of the general elections on 10th of November, funnily enough, he thinks he's just the man to provide that firm smack of government. 
And I should also say that, of course, the images we saw last night are precisely the images that the Catalan authorities don't want. Their message is very much that theirs is a peaceful movement. It's one that unites millions of people. But they don't want to see these images of stone throwing youths or fires in the middle of Barcelona. The two strange things about Catalan politics here are that on the one hand, Catalan politics is incredibly fractured. But on the other hand, there's a broad church that's behind this independence movement. It's about two million people of about four million voters, according to how people have voted in elections. So it's very 50-50. It's not unlike Brexit, the big divisions, but underneath those big 50-50 divisions, increasing radicalization in some ways. So you mentioned that the Catalan independence movement is as old as time, really. But where does it fit in the broader European or even global sweep towards populist politics? Catalan discomfort with the rest of Spain is as old as time. The Catalan separatism and independence movement is something that's only really got going in any meaningful way this decade as the established party that ruled Catalonia from almost all of the democratic period opted for independence. The Spanish government says that the Catalan movement is part of a populist, sovereigntist, fake news kind of phenomenon, linking it with Trump and Brexit. The Catalan independence supporters say quite the opposite. This just shows what great Europeans we are, because in the Europe of the future, the outmoded Spanish nation state is not the way to go, and that we are good Europeans or we're nothing. But in terms of the broader significance, well, we see often in Europe, if you look at the last 20, 30 years, peripheries against the centre state. We've seen tension in Scotland and may well do so again over whether Scotland should become independent. We've seen, obviously, the velvet divorce between the Czech Republic and Slovakia and a much more bloody series of internecine struggles in the former Yugoslavia. Where this is, is really, it's a real test for a country that in many ways is the great success story of the European Union. No country is a better sign of how Europe's managed to transform a place than a country that was a fascist backwater a couple of generations ago and is now in many ways a very modern, dynamic place. But if the Catalan conflict does anything, it shows that the political system in Spain has real problems, not just because one part of Spain or half of one part of Spain wants the future away from Spain, but also because Spanish politics itself barely works without the Catalan factor. In recent years, it's been Catalan votes that have kept governments in office. It's Catalan votes that have actually provided stability to governments of both the centre-left and the centre-right. But now they can't play that role, which is why the Catalan conflict is another reason why Spain has basically been fairly ungovernable in recent years and why we're headed for the fourth general election in as many years. You mentioned the fallout from the financial crisis. How is that feeding into this? To what extent is this an economics question? Catalonia is an enormously important economic region in Spain. It accounts for almost a fifth of the overall economy. It has the leading car sector, the leading textile sector, the leading chemical sector, and probably the leading tourism sector. So it's a very, very big slice of the Spanish economy. Because Catalonia accounts for a slightly smaller percentage of Spain's overall population, I think something like 16%, It gets less than it puts in, because I think the money that's paid out by central government represents population rather than GDP. And in the past, Catalan politicians have looked over to the Basque country, which is a much smaller region, where they've had a very, very nice deal from Madrid over the years and wanted some of that. But the sheer size of the Catalan economy means that subsidies of that order just aren't likely to happen. So that's always been a concern, and that remains a concern. There is a kind of sense in Catalonia that why should we be subsidising a part of a country that we see as less industrious than ourselves? However, one of the things I would just say is that, you know, when you talk to Catalan protesters, 
as I've been doing in recent days, a lot of people are quite well healed. You're talking to lawyers, to graphic designers, to commercial consultants, you know, people like that. So we're not talking about people who haven't got two cents to rub together. This is something that goes much deeper than that. And yet the economic crisis and economic causes have clearly been contributing factors over the years. So just going back to a sort of really practical matters, what happens next in the courts? And also, you know, Carlos Puigdemont, who's the former head of the regional government, has hot-footed to Brussels and his deputy has claimed judicial immunity as a member of the European Parliament. Is there any hope for overturning these judgments? The most important thing is that there are lots of other cases coming down the path, including, for example, the case of the regional police force, which the Supreme Court said this week colluded in the illegal referendum of 2017. Since then, the regional police has been much more aggressive in dealing with the demonstrators, coordinating with the national police. There are several other cases. There's this case, as you said, Mr. Puigdemont, where the first thing that the prosecutor did after Monday's verdict was reactivate the European arrest warrant request for Mr. Puigdemont. The issue that Spain has there is that in the past, when a German court said that they would be prepared to extradite him on misuse of public funds, but not sedition, that wasn't good enough for the Spanish prosecutor. Well, he may well get a very similar problem in Belgium. Then there's Mr. Junqueras, where the European Court of Justice has been asked by Spanish courts to rule on whether Mr. Junqueras has parliamentary immunity. And ultimately, of course, this whole case will go to the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. That may well provide the final word on this case and whether this 13-year sentence stands. But that could be five, six years off. In the meantime, I would just say one last thing. One of the decisions that the court made this week was to deny the prosecutor's request for the defendants to serve at least half of their jail time in full prison. So at least there is the possibility that some of them may be let out earlier, or if not wholly let out, might be let out during the day or at weekends or something like that. I see. As you say, this might end up in the European court some way down the track, but what has the pressure been from EU leaders, if any, for Spain to take a more conciliatory approach here? None. That's a short answer. I mean, isn't there an argument that they should, right? This is on their turf. Some of these people are elected representatives. Well, I think there are noises from other parts of other European countries. So we've seen Nicola Sturgeon issue tweets in support of the people who've been sent to prison. We've seen other SNP politicians do that. There's obviously a certain sympathy between the Scottish nationalists and Catalan nationalists. We've seen parliamentary groups in some countries express their support. We've seen UN bodies in some instances talk about the length of the preventive detention, how that was unacceptable in their eyes. So we've seen that. What we have not seen is another major European country or a supranational body in Europe push Spain to deal with what Spain says is an internal Spanish issue. And I don't think we will. The Catalan authorities have tried to roll out an international effort. They've tried to roll out Catalan delegations abroad that assume much of the functions of national delegations abroad. I think it's safe to say they haven't really managed to engage in that way. So what does the Spanish government do now? Does it just sort of sit and wait and hope that this subsides? And how does this feed into the election that's coming up next month? This is obviously an enormously febrile time because we have this election on November the 10th. Now, the question is whether the Spanish government has much margin for manoeuvre ahead of an election when, to be honest, the socialists are a little bit stuck in the polls anyway and we're hoping for a much easier walkover than it looks like they're getting. At the moment... The Spanish government is being pressed by some of the more right-wing parties to take a heavier stance on Catalonia, to take over control of the police force there, or indeed the whole government itself. 
they don't want to do that. They don't want something that seems to look like Spanish aggression to become a story. They're very, very happy for Catalan contradictions to be worked out as the regional government sends out both demonstrators and police to control the demonstrators. But that then leads to the question, well, what happens after the election? And of course, this itself is a factor in the election, because if it means that there's a push towards the right, that may make the socialist chances of forming a stable government all the more scarce. But even if there is a strong socialist government, it's not clear that it has a strong Catalan government as an interlocutor. Everyone in Catalonia is kind of waiting for new elections. The government is headed by the party of Mr. Puigdemont, which has done much, much worse in all the elections in the last couple of years. Its main partner in government probably wants another election so it can take firm control of the government. But until those further elections happen, and they're not due until 2022, it's quite possible that there isn't really an empowered Catalan interlocutor either. So at the moment, the risk remains that what we're headed for is kind of a frozen conflict with the risk of violent hotspots of the kind that we've seen in the last few days. Dan, thanks very much. you go, we've launched a new podcast this month called The Rackman Review, a weekly look at global affairs by the FT's chief foreign affairs commentator, Gideon Rackman. This week's episode is about Trump, Brexit and the shrinking role of the US on the global stage. The show is exclusively for FT subscribers, so if that's you, please go to ft.com slash Review and sign up for a taste of the global political debates that Gideon writes about in his columns. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.